0: Good morning. Will you please stand as you're able for the day's scripture lesson? Today's New Testament lesson comes from Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 11. Hear these words. When John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Jesus answered them Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with skin disease are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them and blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me as they went away jesus began to speak to the crowds about john what did you go out into the wilderness to look at a reed shaken by the wind what then did you go out to see someone dressed in soft robes Look, those who wear soft robes are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, Among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
1: Thank you, Michael, and thank you, Casey. Thank you to all of our musicians for leading us. And if what we just heard is any indication of what we're gonna hear tonight, we will be supremely blessed. And we look forward to that worship time with each of you. It is so good to be together with you in person and also those of you who are with us online. uh, We want you to know what an honor it is to be in worship with you, to teach God's word, to praise together, to pray together. And uh, we feel your presence with us as well. I uh, apologize to Sutton Elizabeth and her family for scaring her to death this morning. Uh, I was comforted a little bit by a grandfather who said to me, uh, it's okay, she had the same reaction with Santa. And so um, I don't know if that's any indication of what I'm beginning to look like or not, but um, we're, we're, we're so grateful. Um, it is so good to be in worship with each of you today. And especially those of you who are visiting with us, we're, we're so grateful that you've chosen to be a part of this service. Uh, if you've not been with us, we're in the third week uh, of our series called Expecting the Unexpected. Now, just as Casey said, 14 days from the day, which, gentlemen, means for us that it's almost time to begin our Christmas shopping. Not yet, but almost. I don't know if it seems odd to you, it does to me that the lectionary readings for Advent in week two and three point us to the ministry of John the Baptist. I think it's appropriate because the early church in the first uh, couple of generations looked at John as the forerunner, the harbinger uh, of Jesus. Uh, They thought of him as being very much like the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament, who apparently appeared in the wilderness seven centuries before Jesus, shouting, prepare ye the way of the Lord, get ready, make straight his paths. The ministry of John the Baptist was one that created kind of an air of expectation. People got excited. It seemed that something was about to happen. Because when John preached, John didn't point to the institution. He pointed to the incarnation. He didn't simply point people to the temple. He pointed people to the teacher, the one to come, whose sandals he said, I'm unworthy to carry. In fact, you may recall in the passage after what we read last week, uh, that as John was baptizing the multitudes of people that were coming from Judea uh, and 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 from Jerusalem, that in the line for baptism was Jesus himself who came to be immersed. Now, for many in the early church, and maybe for you, I don't know, that was kind of a confusing detail because John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I don't know about you, but I was always taught from my childhood that Jesus was the only man who ever lived who was without sin, I still believe that. Hebrews 4, 15 says it. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as are we, yet without sin. I I would prefer the text to read, now Jesus waded into the water and anointed himself. In the name of the Father, me, and the Holy Spirit, amen. But that's not how it went. In fact, we're told that John the Baptist tried to stop it. He tried to deter Jesus. He he said, it's you who ought to be baptizing me. And Jesus insisted, hey, let it be so for now, for this is important in order to fulfill all righteousness, whatever that means. I'll tell you what it means. It means that as early as the beginning Of his ministry at his baptism that jesus is already taking on the role of mediator in other words he's coming for the people who won't come he's coming to acknowledge sin for sinners who are not coming to the water he comes on our behalf and as he's coming up, coming up out of the the jordan many of us have been to that traditional site where jesus was baptized the voice from heaven thunders, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. So now on in baptism, as we did for your precious daughter, whenever someone's baptized in Jesus' name, it's not just an act of repentance, it's an inauguration of identity. It means that Sutton Elizabeth is a child of God. We are marked through baptism as sons and daughters of the Most High God. John appears in all four Gospels and it appears to me that in all four Gospels, John believed that Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, in the fourth Gospel, the Gospel of John, it even says that John believed so much that he pointed his own disciples to follow Jesus, saying, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist was the first to make a confession of faith in Christ. And yet, according to the text that we just read, there would come a day when John would question his own confession. There would come a day when this prophet would doubt his own conviction about Jesus. And what that says to me is that the journey of faith does not circumvent the season of doubt. I appreciate the honesty in the Bible about this. In fact, you see it in Matthew 28, 16. At the end of Matthew's gospel, this is just after the resurrection, just before the ascension and the great commission, the text reads, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted, oh no. In Greek, the word is distazo. Literally, it means to waver. It means to fluctuate, to vacillate. I've heard it said that faith can move mountains and doubt can sometimes create them. But it's a part of the journey. I think sometimes we make the mistaken assumption that priests and prophets and saints never waver. And yet you turn to Revelation 6.10 and it says that even the martyred saints in heaven sometimes come before the throne of God and say, how long? How long until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and come and avenge our blood? So apparently even saints endure disappointed expectations. William Shakespeare said, expectation is the root of all heartache. Alexander Pope, blessed is he who expects nothing for he shall never be disappointed. I don't ever want to be that one. I prefer Dr. King's word, we must accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. That's what I want us to be. But the fact remains in Matthew 11, apparently for John, hope is on the ropes. John got sideways with the government. Never happens today, but it did then. He called out Herod Antipas, King Herod, a Jewish king. He called him out for marrying his brother's wife, which would be interesting at the Thanksgiving table and holidays, but it was intolerable for a Jew, and John couldn't keep quiet. Consequently, because of his stand, Herod locked him up, and in his captivity, in his incarceration, John had time to think. He had time to ponder his life, to reflect his theology. In fact, he sent two of his own disciples, two of his friends, to to probe Jesus with this question, are you the one to come, or should we be looking for somebody else? That's painful. It is hard for us to fathom a prophet once so adamant, <laughs> once so resolute, once so outspoken, who is now in the confines of prison become ambivalent about life and faith. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who has recently received a very difficult diagnosis. He said, it's hard to take because he said, for so long, I have felt immortal. I have felt invincible. And then the phone rang and the doctor changed my life. And I need to ask you, he said, is it wrong for me to question? I said, no, sir, it's human. In fact, Jesus himself would raise the question at Golgotha on a good Friday afternoon. My God, my God, why me? It's a human question. Tennyson said, there lies more faith in honest doubt than in half the creeds. And I think he's being facetious, but he makes a point. Are you the one? Or should we be looking elsewhere? Let me give you the Revised Chapel Version. Let me paraphrase what I think John was really asking. Jesus, if you're really the one to come, then why am I in this fix? Lord, if you're the hope of the world, why am I in chains? If you're the prince of peace, why am I so anxious and restless? I believed, I confessed, I obeyed, I witnessed, I preached, I served. And now there's this cloud over me. Don't look now, but I think John is suffering from disappointed expectations. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German priest who was held captive by the Third Reich because of his faith, once wrote these words A prison cell in which one waits, hopes, does various unessential things, and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside is a pretty good picture of Advent. We're waiting. We're hoping. We're seeking, we're searching. But here, here's, here's my question. How do you respond to a, to a wavering prophet? <laughs> How do you respond to a, to a fluctuating preacher? I'm not really sure that Jesus was exactly what John was expecting. In fact, you remember John's prophecy about Jesus. He said, look, I baptize you with water, but there's one coming after me who will baptize you with fire and judgment. I don't think Jesus was exactly what John was. John was looking for an ax. And Jesus brought him across. Jesus didn't show up with a pitchfork or swinging a sword. He came girding a towel. Washing feet. Not exactly, are you the one? Now, at this point, Jesus' response is curious to me. Because when Jesus heard this from the two friends, notice what he didn't do. He didn't reprimand him for his lack of faith. That's what I'd have done. He didn't scold him. He, he doesn't get defensive and say, "Ah, oh, you shouldn't feel that way. No, he says to these two friends... I want you to go back to John and I want you to just give him your witness. Don't get into theology. Don't get into doctrine. Just, just tell him what you see happening. Go and tell John what you hear and see. Notice the emphasis on hearing at first. In Matthew five through seven, first it's the Sermon on the Mount, it's on hearing. But in chapters eight through 10, it's about doing. And so the disciples have not only heard, but they're seeing. They're hearing it. Go and tell John what you hear and see. Give your witness. Blind eyes are opening up. Lame people are walking. Again, lepers cleanse. The deaf hear. The dead are being raised. And good news is being preached to the poor. Now, what you may not know is that is a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 35 and 61. Seven centuries before he ever came, these are the signs of the messianic age. This is what will be happening. So you see the indirect response. He is the one. But what you may not notice is that there is one omission in their witness that is in Isaiah 61 verse three that the disciples don't mention. There is no mention of freed captives to John. Why not? because John isn't going to be freed. He's going to be martyred. Not because he did something wrong, but because he did something right. And not only is John gonna be held captive, but so is Jesus. And what that says to me is that sometimes the path of righteousness does not circumvent sacrifice and suffering, it hits it head on. Of course, judgment will come, in the second coming but not in the first and then what I want you to notice uh, how does John respond to their witness we don't know <laughs> did he reaffirm his faith did he, did he renew his confession uh, did he reaffirm his we don't know but then the question at this point is no longer about John it's about you It's about me. We who are still hanging, we who are still hoping, we who are in between first and second coming, who are waiting and sometimes wavering, what is our response to the question? If he is the one, then what does that mean for me? What does that mean for you? Who are we to be? In July of 1944, Dietrich Bonhoeffer had been incarcerated by Hitler for over a year because of his stance, because of his faith. This great German priest, he was in prison composing prayers for prisoners, circulating them illegally to the others. And every day it is said that he ended his day in prayers, praying even for the guards that held him captive. Said one of his inmates, his composure and dependence on Jesus was absolutely remarkable. He consoled those who had lost hope, and he gave us courage. Mr. Bonhoeffer, just a couple of weeks before he was hanged, before he was martyred, wrote a poem. And he sent it to his parents before he died. He was 39 when he was martyred. And I think as I read it, you may hear the pathos of John. Who am I? They often tell me. I step from my cell, calm and cheerful and poised, like a squire from his manner. Who am I? They often tell me. I speak with my guards, freely, friendly, and clear, as though I was the one in charge. Who am I? They also tell me, I bear days of calamity, serenely smiling and proud like one accustomed to victory. But am I really what others say of me or am I only what I know of myself? Restless, yearning, sick like a caged bird, struggling for life breath as if I were being strangled. I'm starving for colors, for flowers, for birdsong, thirsting for kind words human closeness, shaking with rage at power, lust, and petty insult, tossed about, waiting for great things to happen, helplessly fearing for friends so far away, too tired and empty to pray, to think, to work, weary and ready to take my leave of it all. Who am I, this one or the other? Am I this one today, tomorrow another? Am I both at once, before others a hypocrite, and in my own eyes a pitiful whimpering weakling? Or is what remains in me like a defeated army, fleeing in disarray from victory already won? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. And then he resolves it. Whoever I am... Thou knowest me, O God, I am thine. And two weeks later. By the way, the other line in the Isaiah text 61, which was not noted, is this He gives me beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning he put a song of praise in place of sorrow. Isaiah never said there'll be no ashes. He never said there'll be no mourning, no more disappointment, no sorrow, but he does promise that joy is coming. That's why we lit the candle. Weeping remains for the night, but joy comes in the morning. The color of the candle, as you can see, is different today. It's not purple. It's not because we ran out of purple candles. Purple is the color of penitence and sorrow, but rose, the candle we lit today, is the color of joy. And I may be wrong, but I'm just guessing that when those two disciples shared their witness with John, suddenly his cell became a sanctuary and his sorrow turned into singing. Let me give you one example and I'm finished. When Sherry and I were in Georgia, when we were in Cartersville, this is Bartow County, somewhere between Atlanta and Chattanooga, our little church was located just two and a half miles off of I-75, off the interstate, which meant we had a lot of company, a lot of visitors, and we heard a lot of hard luck stories. Most of the people that we met who were strangers needed food and gas and maybe a place to stay or needed some fuel to get who knows where. I remember one Christmas Eve, there was a middle-aged woman and her elderly mother who somehow found the parsonage. I don't know how they did, but they always found the parsonage. They needed a place for the night and some gas. She asked me if we were having a service that night at the church, and I said, yes. And she said, well, I play the violin. And I thought to myself, yeah, and I'm Andrea Bocelli. (laughs) We got him a room. And they showed up at the service. She had her violin case under her arm. And I thought, oh boy, but what can it hurt? And so I called an audible. It wasn't in the bulletin, but before I preached, I invited her to come up and to play, and she took out the bow. she I still remember what she played, What. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? There was just a handful of worshipers there. And I can tell you, they don't remember a single word I said. But they remember that woman. A stranger with an out-of-state tag pulled out a bow and stroked those strings to welcome the Messiah, the one to come. It was unexpectedly beautiful. In fact, the congregation really wanted me to shorten my sermon so she could play some more, but I didn't. But after the benediction, she played some more. Our lay leader came, we took up a love offering, but it was a pittance compared to the gift that she gave us that night. So unexpected. I went to thank her the next morning at the hotel, but they were already gone. And the thing I remember best about her was not just the music I remember her name would you believe it was joy (laughs) and she certainly was to us let's let's not kid ourselves life even in advent even the waiting is has, has its share of disappointments expectations gone wrong unfulfilled But I tell you for sure that even in those seasons of detainment and captivity, the prophet Nehemiah was right on target. The joy of the Lord is our strength. That's why we light the candle. In Jesus' name.